basically, it's really very simple. It's what the teacher should be doing in a school. Mm. If once you grasp that you're meant to be a teacher, it's an enormous help. If you have never learned that you're meant to be a teacher, you'll never be any use to be, or will you? Mm. Yeah. That is what the New Testament mm. sees you to be, makes it so clear. You can't read 1 and 2 Timothy without realizing that you are a teacher. What is it that makes a sermon faithful and effective? In today's episode of the Bible Matters podcast, we spoke once again with Dick Lucas, former rector of St. Helens Bishopsgate in London. Throughout the latter half of the 20th century, Dick Lucas became known across the world for his distinctive style of expository preaching. A style which was renowned for faithfulness to the biblical texts and a high quality of public speaking. We sat down with Dick to ask him about how he came to develop his style, what his practice of studying the Bible looked like, as well as who influenced him in his work. My name's Tiff Stromso. And I'm Leo Elborn, and this is the Bible Matters Podcast, encouraging faithful Bible teaching and ministry. Was there a particular moment when you heard a Bible teacher or teaching and you thought to yourself, yes, that's how I want to teach the Bible? I was only five years younger than John Stott. Um, I'm 98 now, and he would be, bless his heart, what would he be, 103? (laughs) (laughs) I got to know him and... It was a revelation to me then, although I knew the I knew the form, it was a revelation to me to see that in the church setting. What was it about his teaching that you heard and liked and wanted to replicate? Number one, it opened the eye, your eye to the Bible, and you were dazzled with what the Bible had to say instead of being bored stiff. The automatic view of the man of the world is that the Bible is boring. Once you're born again and you listen to a real preacher, you are amazed what is there. I think that's the first thing. Second, I think probably impressed by competence in arranging the material, realizing that that really matters, that odd remarks and blessed thoughts are not enough, and that things have to be explained clearly without being patronized. Mm. He was superb at those early days at All Souls. And then thirdly, of course, realising that as a result of that, you yourself could understand the Bible. <laughs> the one the great thing about preachers is, is the secret is unlocked. And you go, to the, you go to the bookstore and you buy a Bible for yourself. Yeah, It's a joy when you yeah, hear that, God for yourself. That you can do it just as much as the preacher. Dick, I'd love to talk to you more about the style of your preaching and how that kind of developed throughout the course of your Bible teaching ministry. Can I ask, first of all, when you deliver a talk, what is your aim? Oh, I'm terrified about style. I occasionally see pictures of myself now, and they horrify me. How quickly we get absurd looks, don't we? Our mouth falls open or we blow our nose or something stupid. This very dear brother who sent me his summary of his life's work, said that when he began to preach, he really was just like the camp talks. Three points, application. Well, in a sense, you never outgrow that. 
But it's more than that, isn't it? First of all, it's getting to the heart of what the, the passage is saying. I think that's absolutely fundamental. Mm. 99 out of 100 people saying the Lord's Prayer have no idea of the structure of it, which is so important. Mm. That God insists that you first look at his concerns before he looks at your concerns. So study means that, doesn't it? Once you've studied and got the meaning, then you have to arrange it. And I think arranging is very important. And so I teach young ministers, I did, to make an outline. Because in making a proper outline, you may not bring that to the congregation. They may not even be aware that you've got it. But they would soon be aware if you hadn't got it, because you'd be a muddle. Mm. I think having discovered the meaning and then made a clear outline of the passage, which makes sense, and incidentally, you come to a new appreciation of the, that the Bible writer knew what he was doing, or rather the Holy Spirit did in guiding him. I think that's even more important, that this is a Holy Spirit book, and therefore will be faultless. I can't tell you how important that is. As I inherited, you see, the whole liberal package when I went to college, theological college, and there you have, and this is not important really, but it's, it's awesome. You have four, gener four to five generations of people who don't believe that the Holy Spirit inspired the Bible and therefore don't look for excellence or accuracy or truth and therefore try to make up their own mind what they must have meant. That is so arrogant, isn't it? the 21st century, making up my, our minds what they ought to have said. Dick, you've talked about being faithful to the text, so preaching what it says, how it says it, in the order it says it. Are there any other elements you think are important when preaching? Well, of course, we do need to illustrate, don't we, and apply, and I think there are some skills in that. Uh, illustrating sensibly... Not wildly, is important, isn't it? And it takes a certain amount of experience. And applying it to ordinary situations is largely a matter not of scholarship, but common sense. Mm. Some preachers have no common sense. <laughs> and uh, what, what, how can you help them? Mm. So the fact is there are preachers who ought not to be preaching. And in a way, they don't, you see... They stop preaching because people can't bear it. Church wards are looking for all the wrong things, of course. Um, uh, the church often kills itself by appointing the wrong man. What do you mean by church wardens looking for the wrong thing? Well, of course, it depends on the church wardens. And they're very different, aren't they? But someone just wants a jolly nice chap. Yeah. Mm. A bit of a people pleaser. Maybe. Others are desperate for someone who can uh, keep the finances on the right lines. You hear that line about ministers a lot, don't you? They're not very good at preaching, but they're very good at making tea or chatting uh, That's right, and that's because the wrong men have got there. Mm. Uh, there are plenty of room for a staff on the church. Mm. The early... Preachers, you know, used to think that you ought not to have a congregation of more than 30, 40. 
But of course, life is not like that. People will congregate where they find food. <laughs> a man is therefore called to do what no man can do. Mm. And therefore, you build up a team. Mm. That's expensive. But that works itself out uh, because if people are fed, they will pay for it. Mm -hmm. People are more in, more wanting real friendship today than ever. Mm -hmm. A church ought not to be able to fail. Mm -hmm. And if the minister fails, he should leave the job and become a greengrocer. I'm afraid that too many people came in who didn't know how to do the job. You've got to leave that to the Lord, haven't you? Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. A principal theological college is looking to fill up his places to pay for the place. But actually, what you should be looking for is the people that God has touched. Dick, you talked in the last episode about your ministry in the city of London and St. Helens Bishop's Gates. Can I ask, how did you adapt your preaching? in order to make it accessible and engaging for the people in those contexts? Well, I always have thought that it was wrong to preach to a type. That is, a lot of people preach to women because women are alone in their churches. Uh, I had a clear view that I was not preaching to uh, the Freemasons. Uh, and when I first came to the city, there were a great many. There still are far too many. But that is a deadly thing amongst men in the city, especially the older generation. But I didn't put on a special manly thing. There are some people who preach only to young people. I think all that's wrong. Uh, I think you preach. Obviously, you're a human being, and you're aware of the people who are in front of you, and there will be things that... Uh, have the, the, that touch. But basically, preaching should be the same to everybody. Uh, it's governed by this. That sets the agenda. The Bible. The congregation doesn't set the agenda. And I had to learn that fairly early on, I think, in the city. The congregation did not set the agenda. I didn't pretend to be a businessman. I would be a useless mm. businessman. <laughs> Dick, what did you find most challenging about preaching? It's uh, difficult to answer a question like that, isn't it? I loved the uh, work of getting to grips with the Word of God. But I suppose sin is the main thing that you've got to watch, isn't it? Sin. Mm. That's the thing that the devil is using all the time to mm. cripple the church. Mm. And I, I guess that sin is a challenge on the one hand, just in our laziness of working harder to talk, sin may be kind of... Yes, we must never forget that hard work. Yeah. But then the attack from the enemy will be on laziness, cutting corners, sinfulness. Mm -hmm. I really do think that this... Mind you, God uses these things. We, mm -hmm. we believe in the sovereignty of God, don't we? <laughs> Dick, can you give us a glimpse of your study whenever you had to preach a passage? 
How did you begin the process of writing any talk? I'm naturally lazy like everybody else. <laughs> I just had to get down to work, I suppose. I think people don't realise it's work. Certainly the congregation don't, which is very discouraging. What are you doing in your study? Mm. So, but, you know, if you're a Christian, it makes all the difference because you have an appetite, don't you, to discover this treasure, to pass it on to others. Mm. And there's no joy greater than that. That's not just the preacher. That's the leader of any Bible study group. Mm. Why do Bible study groups continue? Because they're finding treasure. Mm. As you progress through your ministry, what helped you most in overcoming difficulties and improving? Well, first of all, you've got to understand your material. And so lexicons and dictionaries and languages are important as far as they go. Having found out what the text actually says, and people have often no idea what it actually says, they don't even know really what the Lord's Prayer actually says. Yes, I'd quite like you to see this. Yeah, I'd quite like you to see this because... I had never seen it before, and I must have preached on this passage before. But you've got the Lord's Prayer here, which everybody takes for granted, haven't you? Luke 11, verses 2, 3, and 4. Mm. Well, the Lord's Prayer, you know, the Plymouth Brethren don't like us using it, the closed brethren, because they think that we should have no formal prayers. But obviously we do use the, the Lord's Prayer as a formal prayer. But it's much more than that. It is actually a pattern. And it's in two halves. It's very, very simple. And verse 9, 10, and, uh, 9 and 10 say, God's concern for himself, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. So you first are to told to pray about God's concerns, not your own. The primary are his concerns, what he is like, his name, what he is doing, his kingdom, and what his will is to be done in the whole missionary work of the church. And then in the second half, it's not about God's concerns. It's not about our concerns for God's concerns. It's God's concerns for our concerns. Give us our daily bread, forgive us our sins, and lead us on to temptation. Now, I mean, that is absolutely basic, isn't it? That means that fundamentally, God has divided into two halves. And he wants us in our prayers, first and foremost, to be concerned with his concerns. Mm -hmm. Which means that prayer is not scrambling around about what we are doing and what we ought to do and what Mrs. Jones ought to do and so on. Mm -hmm. That's an absolutely fundamental principle, isn't it? That in the first part of our prayers, we have to pray about God's concerns. And the second part, he is concerned with our concerns. Mm. I wonder if people know that the Lord's Prayer is doing that. That's fundamental to it, isn't it? Uh, so once you've got that straight, it will give you your whole philosophy of what intercessory prayer is about. Mm. It's that kind of study, I mean, which I don't think that once a clergyman is discouraged, he will ever do. Mm. You've then got to work at that to make it palatable. You've got to arrange your food. It's mm -hmm. all like a cook. 
having got good materials, you've got to make it edible. Yeah. <laughs> Was there anything you learnt along the way that particularly helps with that? Any kind of principles or rules of thumb? Arrangement is obviously helpful, isn't it? Mm. <laughs> a model is a model wherever it comes. <laughs> And therefore, I'm four headings. I know they get laughed at. I know the 3.7 gets laughed at. But in practice, it's very hard to beat for the, for the newcomer. It teaches him method. It teaches him to, teach, to treat his congregations as though they require some kind of order. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, after that, he's got to learn to... Make it the uh, material attractive. He's got to illustrate it just as well as explain it. It's basically it's really very simple. It's what the teacher should be doing in a school. Mm. If once you grasp that you're meant to be a teacher, it's an enormous help. If you think you're just meant to give encouraging noises, <laughs> if you have never learned that you're meant to be a teacher, you'll never be any use to be, or will you? Mm. Yeah. You know, that's where the pastoral epistles, when you ask me what, where you look for instructions, the pastoral epistles are obvious, one, two, Timothy and Titus. But there, Paul is actually giving instructions to the pastor to be a teacher. I really think if you'd asked many clergy in my youth, what are you meant to be doing? They would not say, first of all, a teacher. Mm. They would say a comforter, a helper, an encourager, a visitor. I don't know what they would say. You know what, Dick? For a lot of my friends outside of church, yes, no, you would know. unbelieving friends, when they ask me what I do, I actually often say I'm a teacher. That's right. I teach the Bible. So That's friends right. who are in primary schools, I do the same thing as you, but mine is all about the Bible. You would do the same thing as the primary school. That is what the New Testament mm. sees you to be, makes it so clear. You can't read 1 and 2 Timothy and teach you without realizing that you are a teacher. But many clergy don't know that that's their primary, or at least mm. they did not in my youth. I think, I think it's, it's penetrating. But if you're a liberal, what a problem. What are you going to teach because you're not sure of it? You've mentioned already that you were teaching young preachers how to preach. Can you tell us a little bit about how you taught them to write talks? Well, I was teaching them not exactly how to teach, but how to handle the Bible, mm. how to teach it, how it does its work. You see, I gave you an example earlier. It does its work in so many different ways. Um, so it is hard work. <laughs> the other idea is it's hard work, you see, I remember a co conference oh, years ago where we had a man called Mr. Llewellyn Roberts to teach us. <laughs> and he was a wonderful chap. He had no ages. And I vividly remember we were all young ministers and we gathered around him at the end of the session. We loved him. We knew we knew that though he was a quaint old fellow, that he'd got the secret. And somebody asked that sort of question, and we stood around him, and we probably were drinking coffee, 
And we stood around him and we said, what's your secret, Mr. Roberts? And he looked, looked in a rather dull way at us and he said, hard work. <laughs> hard work. Without any H's. <laughs> hard work. And my guess is that he'd not had a privileged background, but he'd worked his way up to be the college principal. I'm not sure he'd get the job these days. <laughs> There is that great quote by Martin Lloyd-Jones, isn't there? And I can't quite recall how it goes. But someone said, Dr. Lloyd-Jones, what was your best sermon? And he shrugged and said, the one I worked hardest on. Yeah, well, that's right. Mm. And that's the same answer that this dear old fellow was saying. Mm. And I remember how disappointed we were, you know, and how people sort of slipped away from the crowd to drink their coffee because they were hoping for some great secret. Yeah, yeah, it would be useful. It's so true. Yeah. And Dick, just on that, I guess being being a Bible teacher is is a long career. Uh, And I guess it's easy to get stuck in a rut to stop trying to improve. How did you avoid becoming stagnant in your Bible teaching? Yes, that's such a difficult question to answer. It's a very, very proper one. I think it's why people move churches. I think there are many answers to this. I think it's why people move. This man who sent me his, I suppose you call it his CV, really, He'd been to four or five churches. And I, I thought to myself when I first looked at it, having spent 30 years at St. Ellis, why did you want to move so regularly? I think there's a good reason for this. I think people need to start afresh. They've learned a lot. And they need a fresh church to go, a fresh challenge to go to. It's only one reason. Secondly, I think probably most of us are not sufficiently adequate to do it on our own and we need somebody to be with us. So I would be for lay preachers as long as they're trained by, uh, properly. So I, I think the man who's left on his own does is open to this. And then, of course, the real thing behind it all is that these men in the olden days never had any fellowship. I don't know how they existed. Mm-hmm. One of the things that's changed everything really after the war was that we started to meet one another. Mm. Um, Proclamation Trust is only one of these. But I mean, the way in which Proc Trust was taken up by hundreds of young of men meant they were lonely. Mm. And our conferences, you see, at St. Helens, these vast conferences we had, why did people bother to come? Mm. Pay an expensive rail fare. They wanted to meet their brothers. Mm. Mm. They couldn't find in their churches, especially if they'd just gone to a church which was fairly dead, they couldn't find anybody they could talk to. Mm. Mm. It was bad for them, actually. So often that kind of loneliness is really the fatal step in becoming a stagnant preacher. It is. Mm. It really is. Looking back, was expository teaching the right thing to do with your ministry? Well, there wasn't anything else to do. 
the bankruptcy of other kinds of preaching had become very obvious. I mean, there were always great eloquent preachers, weren't there, in the church. But look at Lloyd-Jones, what did he learn? If ever a Welshman has got a gift of the gab, it's, 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 it's so, isn't it? He could have been a, a typical Welshman. He was a Welshman. <laughs> but he learned that uh, he had to teach the word. He had an exceptional intelligence. <laughs> you read his medical training, you know, getting all those degrees by the time he was 21 and so on. But he was quick to learn this. No one learns quicker than a Welshman <laughs> what, what eloquent waffle means. Mm, mm. And he learned from his background that Welsh eloquence was useless. That's why he became a great teacher. Throughout your years as a Bible teacher, what would you say were the biggest challenges you faced to expository preaching? I don't. I find that difficult to answer, really. Um, the moment we slip away from it, you realise that we're going downhill, and it brings you back, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. And so the constant need to do the study, I suppose that's it, isn't mm -hmm. it? That once you lose that, you've lost mm -hmm. everything, haven't you? You need, your, you need others, friends, and so many are isolated. You need workbook study. You need the stimulus of others. You need study. Take those two away and you're finished in the end, aren't you? And that's how many men I think that I look back to as a boy. I can see in the churches they didn't have any fellowship and they didn't have any stimulus. And their congregations made demand, no demands on them except keep it short, Padre. Mm. You know what? I'm studying Mark's gospel this year in my Bible study groups. I, I can't count how many times I've looked at it. And I'm still amazed every time I come back with a new group of people, we find something new and I have something new to be encouraged by, see it afresh. That's right. It works this way as well as that way, doesn't it? Your study will work in you, renewing you, mm. and it will renew the people who listen to you. Once you lose that, or once you never had it, and your college didn't give it to you, I, I don't think I doubt why the church got into the mess it mm. had in the 20s and 30s. Dick, do you think there are any particular challenges facing preachers now in the 21st century? Well, the New Testament constantly tells us that the old serpent is seeking whom he may devour. And he will do that, of course, not by attacking us through things that are obviously wrong, but things to be seen, seem to be the new answer. So the new fashions and the new answers are deadly. He will not give you a plate of poison, will you? He'll give you a plate of roast mm. beef and nice vegetables mm. and red currant jelly. Mm. But with that, there will be something deadly, mm. which if it is not disciplined, um, and that's what this uh, 
Incidentally, that's what this new freedom on sex could be. I don't know if it will be, but that could destroy the Church of England, couldn't it? Dick, we have one final question for you. Do you have any words for Bible teachers who are feeling weary, who are feeling that the task ahead of them is just too much to bear? Yes, that's why we started our conferences. And uh, I shouldn't say so, but I can't tell you what blessing these sort of meetings are to people. And I wasn't the only one in it. I mean, there were plenty of conferences apart from ours. But the way those early conferences were taken up in in, um, in Prop Trust is uh, not now really, because I think in a way people have had the benefit of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but people aren't any longer so lonely. There's nothing odd about that. No. That's just that we need one another, don't we? Yeah. We do. Dick Lucas, thank you so much well, for coming on the podcast. It's been great to chat to you. No, it's been lovely. I'm afraid I haven't said anything very much, but I I remember I'm 20 years from the front line. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Bible Matters podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, why not like and subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts? The Bible Matters project is funded entirely by the generous gifts of our listeners. And if you yourself would like to become a financial partner with us, you can find more details on how to give in the show notes. The Bible Matters podcast is an initiative of St. Helens Bishopsgate and is created by myself, Tiff Stromso, along with Leo Elborn. Music for this episode was written and produced by Leo Elborn and Josh Stidwell. You can listen to more of Josh's work at Stids with a one, that is S-T-1-D-S. Thanks again for joining and we hope to see you again soon.